This podcast is made possible by Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Welcome to our Go Bronx podcast, episode three. I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Angel. On today's episode, we are going to delve into the lives of a few Bronxites that were a bit, shall we say, nefarious. We will begin with a fellow by the name of Arthur Flagenheimer, or more commonly known as the notorious Dutch Schultz. I'd imagine Dutch Schultz had a more ominous sound to it than Arthur Flegenheimer, which sounds more like a CPA firm, Flegenheimer and Associates. Well, I don't think this is the type of guy you would want handling your taxes, you know what I mean? No, he was a pretty scary dude. Indeed. While Arthur was born in the Yorkville section of Manhattan in 1902 to German-Jewish immigrant parents Emma and Hermann Flegenheimer. His family moved to the Bronx when he was very young. At the time, the Bronx was at the tail end of its German immigration era, which dates back to the 1870s. Back then, several German families immigrated to the Bronx and brought along their beer brewing tradition and built breweries along streets like 3rd and Melrose Avenues. Just to show you that Dutch Schultz wasn't the first of the Bronx beer barons. Anyway, by the time Arthur was a teenager, he was already getting into trouble. His dad abandoned the family when he was 14 years old, he began working side jobs until he started dabbling into the underworld and landed himself on Blackwell's Island for robbery when he was 18 years old. In the early 1900s, Blackwell's Island had a hospital asylum and a penitentiary which held up to 7,000 patients and inmates. It's now called Roosevelt Island. But his brief incarceration did little to teach him a lesson about going on the straight and narrow. During the age of prohibition, Arthur decided to make a name for himself. Yes, when he was finally released in 1920, Prohibition was in full swing. Speakeasies and stash houses were all over the South Bronx at the time, and Arthur wanted in on all the action. By this time, he was introducing himself as Dutch Schultz and began to gradually make his mark. So the name Dutch Schultz was not random. The original Dutch Schultz was one of the leaders and allegedly the most notorious member of the Frog Hallow Gang. Based in the Melrose section in the 1880s and 90s, this gang would terrorize the neighborhood and rob its citizens. They named the gang after a swampy section of the South Bronx where the train yards are located today at East 149th Street and the Grand Concourse. Later on, Dutch Schultz II would store his contraband liquor in a row of metal garages called the Tins just nearby. Today, that's where Ostos Community College and the General Post Office is located. After his release, Dutch stepped up his criminal career by working at speakeasies in the South Bronx, where his appetite for blood as a bouncer and enforcer was duly noted. One of the places he worked at was called the Hub Social Club on Brook Avenue, where bar owner and crime figure Joey No liked what he saw in Schultz, and the two became partners in a bootlegging operation. It was only after Joey No was killed that Dutch Schultz promoted himself and expanded the operation beyond the Bronx and into Harlem and other places. So it was said that during a business meeting, Dutch Schultz had once, without any provocation, put a gun in a man's mouth and pressed the trigger in front of others. He then apologized to his other business partners for making them witness such a terrible and gruesome act. Such a gentleman. I guess. But all good things must come to an end. Dutch Schultz was finally gunned down at the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey. Story goes that the commission, 
which was the governing body, if you will, of the mafia, wanted him gone because he was plotting to assassinate New York Southern District Attorney Thomas Dewey. If Dutch succeeded, it would have brought a huge cloud on the mob, and that was completely unacceptable. Not to mention a public relations nightmare. When we come back, we will meet a few more infamous Bronxites. Get it, baby, get it! And now, for a little segment we like to call, Yo Angel. Yo Olga. I hear a lot of people talking about giving someone the Bronx cheer. What does that mean, and where did it come from? Okay, most people think the Bronx cheer is simply blowing a raspberry when you stick out your tongue and blow. But there's another step involved. Put your thumb to the tip of your nose with your hand partially splayed. Stick your tongue out and blow a raspberry as you wiggle your fingers. You do a sound. That is the Bronx cheer. Now, where does it come from? There are no clear answers to this, but what we do know is that early mentions of it go back to the turn of the 20th century where newspapers like the New York Times describes the Bronx cheer as one you would use for disapproval during a sporting event. There are articles in numerous papers mentioning this special gesture. Hmm, now you know. So Angel, there were other villainous things happening in the Bronx around the same time Dutch Schultz was terrorizing the streets of New York City, right? Yes, it was the famous Lindbergh baby kidnapping case, referred to at the time as the crime of the century. In 1932, noted American pilot Charles Lindbergh, famous for flying nonstop from New York to Paris, received more national attention, but this time for negative reasons. His almost two-year-old son, Charles Jr., was kidnapped from his bed at the family's New Jersey home. A ransom note was left behind. This caused a media frenzy, prompting many average citizens and well-known people to help in the search. Heck, even the infamous Al Capone offered to help, since at first it was believed the crime was committed by gangsters. One average citizen from the Bronx heeded the call. His name was John Condon, and he was a retired school teacher who lived at 2974 Decatur Avenue in Bedford Park. Condon wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper, Bronx Home News, and offered an additional $1,000 to the kidnappers. To his surprise, a response came back with an enclosed letter addressed to Charles Lindbergh himself. In it, the kidnappers instructed Condon to deliver the message to Lindbergh and to stay put for further orders. So Condon gave the letters to Lindbergh, who then authorized Condon to serve as the intermediary with the kidnappers. And under the name Jasfi, he kept the communication going between the kidnappers using different newspapers. Jasfi finally came into contact with one of the kidnappers, who referred to himself as John. It was at the Jerome Gate of Woodlawn Cemetery that John told Jasfi that the baby was fine and would send a token to prove just that. Kind of like proof of life. And after Lindbergh himself confirmed that the clothing did in fact belong to baby Charles, Condon agreed to meet this John fella to drop off $50,000 for the baby's ransom. This drop was supposedly inside St. Raymond Cemetery near Whittemore Avenue. There, Condon was told that the baby was being held on a boat, which turned out to be a lie because the baby's body was ultimately found near the family home two months later. 
They had suspicions that the perpetrator was from the Bronx because the original response had come in as a result of a letter in a Bronx publication. Detectives meticulously poured through forensics and clues, tracing ransom bills, examining written letters, and a slew of other evidence. That led them to a German-born carpenter named Bruno Hupton, who lived at 1279 East 222nd Street. Hupton was first indicted in 1934 for extortion at the brand new Bronx County Courthouse on East 161st Street and the Grand Concourse. Hey, I know where that is. His case was then extradited to New Jersey, where the actual kidnapping took place. Hupton was subsequently convicted and later executed in April 1936. When we come back, we'll hear about one more historical villain that lived in the Bronx, and this one may surprise you. But before we continue, let's take a quick break for some sponsor information. The world has changed a lot in the last year, and more than ever, you need health insurance you can rely on. Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield is the whole health company, and that means they are dedicated to improving the health and well-being of everyone in the Bronx and throughout the New York service area. They've been supporting the health of Bronxites for 86 years, providing you access to high-quality, affordable care. To learn how you can make a whole health connection, go to empireblue.com. Sigourney Weaver here to tell you about the New York Botanical Garden, 250 acres, 1 million plants, and you. Now open in the Bronx. Plan your visit at nybg.org. The Residence Inn by Marriott Bronx at the Hutchinson Metro Center on East Chester Road. This all-suite hotel offers an at-home feel with fully equipped kitchens, luxury bedding, a fitness center, free parking, free breakfast, and free Wi-Fi. Grab a bite to eat at their complimentary social hour or order a local craft beer at the bar. It's better in the Bronx. The Residence Inn by Marriott Bronx. For reservations, call 718-239-3939. Okay. There's one more infamous person who lived in the Bronx at some point in his life. And this one is quite the coinkydink, isn't it? Yes, that would be Lee Harvey Oswald, more widely known as the man responsible for assassinating President John F. Kennedy that fateful day in Dallas in November 1963. In fact, both of them lived in the Bronx at some point in their lives. John F. Kennedy lived in Riverdale and went to the Riverdale Country School. I actually graduated from JFK High School, which is located not too far from there. But they didn't live in the Bronx at the same time. No. Kennedy lived here in the 1920s. Lee Harvey lived in the borough in the early 1950s. Lee Harvey and his mom, Margaret Oswald, lived at 825 East 179th Street, just south of the Bronx Zoo. The building itself was torn down years ago. Nevertheless, the eerie of having the alleged assassin of a United States president who also lived in the same borough remains to be quite mind-boggling. You think? Oswald was a teenager when he attended junior high school 117, where he skipped almost 70% of his first school year there. People who knew him would say you would have found him inside the zoo during school hours. 
A recent New York Times article revealed that the landlord where they lived shared a story with his children of how he once caught the young Lee Harvey Oswald shooting his BB gun out the window at other buildings and passing cars. Wow, that is just incredibly eerie. Well, the Oswalds eventually moved back to New Orleans, and the rest, as they say, is history. Thank you all for tuning in to our Go Bronx podcast, produced by the Bronx Tourism Council and made possible by Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Additional promotional support is provided by NYC and Company. Mucho thanks to our pod headquarters, the Huntington Free Library and Reading Room, for hosting our recording. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GoBXPod. To access some of the links mentioned in this episode and for more information about previous episodes, go to GoBronxPod.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our e-newsletter. As, As always, always, I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Angel. Bronxfully, Bronxfully yours. yours.